Hello, everyone. I was really bothered when I heard about the high rate of depression and suicide among veterinary professionals. When I have spoken with others about this devastating fact, the response has sometimes been, but why? They're working with animals. There can't be anything better than that. Well, yes, working with animals is what led them into this field, but there's so many other factors that are part of their daily work that impacts them and may lead to compassion fatigue and burnout. Please join me as I talk with Dr. Ginger Templeton, a veterinarian who is a small animal practice, does postdoctoral research, is the host of a podcast, and also coaches other veterinarians to prevent burnout and compassion fatigue. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Animal Academy podcast. I'm Allison White, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in the human-animal connection. This podcast will showcase professionals who share their areas of expertise in an ongoing series of interviews, and you are there. Their input, stories, and knowledge will help us all understand that we are the ones that actually end up learning from the animals. This is the Animal Academy Podcast. Ginger, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you for having me on. I'm really excited about this. Well, me too. I've been looking forward to talking with you for quite some time. So Ginger, I met you through the University of Tennessee's Veterinary Social Work Program. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved in that program? Sure. I was thinking about doing something to help vets, veterinarians with wellness for a while. And I had been looking for some type of coaching program or training. And I frankly was on Google. And I saw Dr. Strand's uh, information. So Dr. Elizabeth Strand runs the program. That was really my first connection to this idea that there was a program for veterinarians to train in veterinary human support. And I just signed up right away. I mean, I really, I think it took me like all of a day to get registered mm-hmm. into the program. And that was the first year that they had opened it up to veterinarians. Before that, it had just been a program for social workers and other mental health professionals. So the timing on it was really lucky. I love the fact that we're all involved in the same program in different capacities. I agree. I think that that overlap, being able as a veterinarian to connect with the social workers gives me so much more depth to the training as opposed to Mm -hmm. if it were just veterinarians trying to sort of, you know, do this ourselves. I think it's a, it's a much richer program. And then my sense when I get to talk with the social workers and sit in on some of your trainings is hopefully that we as veterinarians get to bring some insights that you may not have if we weren't in there as well. I love it. It's so collaborative. Very much so. And that's what I enjoyed so much about the intensive that I was in last July is we got to actually talk to you and you could bring in your own perspective and And I I learned so much from that experience. Good. I'm glad. And I'll say, you know, when I read the research on the mental health side, I do sometimes get the sense that what's missing is a veterinarian. There's sort of (laughs) preconceived notions. You see it in, in the data, even in the way the studies are designed around veterinary mental health. And I think the idea that Dr. Strand and and her colleagues have started to bring in veterinarians, I think it's going to be so good for the future of veterinary well-being. I totally agree. And to be honest with you, when I've gone into veterinary hospitals and clinics and I've done presentations on compassion fatigue, the missing piece is uh, the veterinary perspective. And so I've learned a lot from doing that. And I've changed my presentation style a little bit and the content. 
I came in as a therapist, as a social worker, I needed to change it up a little bit because the feedback that I received after doing presentations is we know how to deal with the trauma of losing a pet. We do the best we can with our pets. We just don't know how to deal with the people and some of those challenges. And, you know, it's exactly that. And you will hear in a lot of the meetings, you know, we kind of start with, well, euthanasia is really sad and these sick patients are really sad and they are, but we're, we're dealing with other sort of more mundane, but chronic stressors than those, you know, big, sad scenarios. So I absolutely agree with you. I think that we, we have a lot of unusual challenges in our field. And I think that it's not intuitive. It wouldn't be something that you would guess unless you'd really worked in a hospital. And I also think the difference in different types of hospitals. So a university setting, the challenges are going to be really different than in a small business, you know, privately owned hospital. And so it is, I love that the veterinary social workers being trained at Tennessee are, you know, getting access to all different kinds of veterinarians, all different kinds of veterinary health professionals, technicians, people in industry. It's really, it's really going to become a stronger program. Very innovative. Absolutely. So Ginger, have you always been interested in in working with animals? Not necessarily working with animals. So I grew up loving animals and bringing home stray dogs and that kind of thing. But from probably ninth grade, my intention was to become a professor. And so I, you know, went into graduate school. I was working on a PhD in molecular microbiology in Wisconsin. And I was not even thinking about veterinary medicine, but I was really unhappy in grad school. And part of that unhappiness was about confidence and all of the things that, you know, as a woman in science in my 20s, all of the stuff that I had not really been prepared for. But some of it was also about sitting at a bench, doing bench science and basic research. And so about that time, my husband and I adopted a very naughty puppy named Jones (laughs) And we started going to dog training school because he was so bad. And we started teaching dog training classes with the people at the school. And I mean, just one thing led to the next. And I was in Wisconsin, Madison, where Dr. Patricia McConnell is a very well-known behaviorist. And so I was able to sort of be in that world, in her world. Um, She's just an innovative dog trainer and behaviorist, uh, PhD behaviorist. And so I started to think about how could I still be a scientist, get to work with animals. And of course, veterinary medicine made sense. And so I left my graduate program. I did not finish my PhD, um, left with a master's, applied to vet school, worked in a shelter for a year and got some really good experience in the animal welfare setting. And then started vet school, still with the intention of becoming a professor in a veterinary school, And then we decided to start our family while I was in vet school. And I ended up making the decision that to raise a family, it would make much more sense for me to just go into general practice. And so that was the path. That's really interesting. I think so. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And you followed your heart, right? In a way. I mean, I tend to be a pretty logical person. So when I say we decided to have a family, we literally said, if I can get pregnant in such a time that the baby is born at the end of second year and I can have the summer off with the baby, we will do that. And we got very lucky. So it was a little bit following our hearts, a little bit luck and a lot of sort of planning. And the same thing in fourth year, I said, you know, if we time things right and the baby is going to be born right at the end of fourth year, so I can take a few months off before starting my career, we'll do that. If not, if we, you know, if I don't get pregnant, then I will go do an internship. And so it was a little bit of my heart, a little bit of planning and kind of Mm -hmm. leaving it to chance. 
It was very intelligent. So now you divide your time between general practice and your postdoctoral research. Is that correct? I have been practicing general general practice small animal medicine for about the last 15 years. And I've worn different hats in that in that time period. I've been full-time, I've been part-time. I owned a house call practice for five years. In the last couple of years, I really began looking for something else. And what I realized, and it took me a lot of steps to get here, was that I really missed the academic setting. And I really wanted to tap into that. And, you know, interestingly, this program at Tennessee, this veterinary human support led me to the academic world. It reminded me of how much I missed that world. And so this year, I reached out to a friend who happens to be a professor at NC State, but not in the vet school, and asked him if he knew anybody who would be willing to take on a part-time postdoc. And, you know, that's not really a thing. Really, postdocs are straight out of school, full-time, paid peanuts. But he put me in touch with a professor at the vet school, and she was willing to take me on part-time. So I work with her three or four days a week, and then I see patients in a private hospital two days a week. You had a small, was it a small house call practice, did you say? Yes, small animal house call practice in Raleigh for about, actually five years. And there were, I mean, there were some great things about that. I had complete control over my schedule. I got to really work closely with my clients. And so I would spend a much longer time with the patient and with the client than I was able to in a hospital setting. But it's also challenging to try to run a small business. I only had part-time employees and I just really wore too many hats. And so in the last, well, really with COVID, I decided to close that practice and go back to two days a week in a busy hospital setting. And quite frankly, I had continued to work in that hospital in some capacity, even during owning the house call practice. So I never really left that busy world. Um, and I was very comfortable going back to it. Well, the question I have about that is during our intensive last year, we talked about how people that are in people's homes get the whole picture of what goes on with the animals. And I bet that that gave you a bigger view of what's actually going on. It's eye-opening. And so, you know, one of the things that you learn in vet school and hopefully perfect in practice is how to get a history, asking the right questions, listening long enough and really hearing what your owner is telling you, because our patients are very much like human children in that they're not speaking for themselves. We have to listen to their interpreter, which is their, their human. And even with those skills, even asking the same question three different times, you get three different answers. And what's been fascinating about house calls is that I see the house, I see the environment that the dog is in, I see the food, you know, the owner will say, oh, right, this, this is the treat closet and I don't give any treats. And you see, you know, shelves and shelves of treats or supplements or medications. And the owner says, you know, I was putting those drops in the ears and I can say, get them, go get the drops. Let's look at them together. So it definitely gives you a more thorough view into the patient's health, the patient's environment, and also sometimes the family dynamics. You know, I didn't see a lot of it, but sometimes you would get the sense of of stress and anxiety in the household, and that might be influencing either your patient or the story that the client is telling you about the patient. And sometimes that became relevant. Now, what comes to mind when, when you talk about the stressors in the home and the different and being able to look at the entire environment is then what? You know, as a veterinarian, when you're going in and, you know, you're, you're taking care of people's pets, 
And the reason I'm asking this is because when I talked to some other guests from other programs, we talked about a wraparound, importance of having wraparound services. So besides being one person going in, it then signals that there are other needs or resources that people can be referred to. Now, that's above and beyond what a veterinarian can do, but I think that's what the beauty of veterinary social work is and having other communities involved in people's lives if needed. You know, and I, as you say that, I immediately flip it and hear it from the veterinarian's lens, which is even in a hospital setting, even not in their homes, we see and hear so much more than the general public would believe. So we hear about the husband who's been cheating. We hear about the sister-in-law who's an alcoholic and stresses out the dog. Sometimes it's not even in the context of the patient. The person just starts sharing and sharing and sharing. And you're right. We absolutely, those individuals, those clients need probably additional services. On the flip side, on the veterinarian side, we're not trained, even going through a veterinary human support program, we are not trained in managing our feelings around that and setting those appropriate boundaries. And so I see, especially young female veterinarians, I'm just going to say that coming out of school, wanting to be helpful, wanting to provide and be there and listen. And then just burning out because it's just too much. Yeah, it is too much. It, it is. And so I think in these, I imagine in practices that have a veterinary social worker, what a wonderful option to be able to say, you know what, this is not my area, but let's pull in so-and-so mm-hmm. and, and help you with that. In so many practices that don't have that and don't even have training you know, in any of this, I do think that's part of the burnout issue is that we're there with listeners and maybe sometimes we're too good at that. I totally agree. What great questions to bring up too. You also have a podcast. Can you talk a little bit about your podcast? I do. So my podcast is called Vet to Vet Coaching. And the idea there is I really wanted veterinarians to be aware of all of the resources available for preventing burnout, for dealing with compassion fatigue, for dealing with stress and anxiety, and and even practice management and conflict resolution. And my feeling, my sense was that even though there's so many people moving into the space right now, and you hear a lot about wellness and well-being, I think a lot of veterinarians are a little bit allergic to the touchy-feely. And especially the older veterinarians and the practice owners and the people who have just been grinning and bearing it and white-knuckling it for so long that they just sort of feel like that touchy-feely stuff isn't for them, they don't need it, or it's not going to help that nobody necessarily really understands what they're going through. My thought was, as a veterinarian who's owned a practice, who's worked for 15 years, who's worked in small animal general practice, hopefully I can present these topics in a way that many different veterinarians will see that it's available to them. I I get the sense when I work with veterinarians that newer graduates are more exposed to this in school, and they're coming out hoping for wellness, hoping for you know, these, these tools and resources, but I really think we're still missing the older owners, the, the people who've been out for longer. I, I would agree from, you know, talking to other veterinary professionals too. And in this era of um, COVID, unfortunately, it's really stressed everybody out to the point of, we're just trying to take care of basic needs at this point. And it's really, really important to also take care of your own wellness. Absolutely. And also the teams, you know, when I, do a podcast, you know, sometimes it really is specific to things veterinarians face, but so much of the stressors that we face 
really affect every single person in the hospital. And so you'll have a receptionist who's 23 years old, never really trained in the field. She's just come to work because she's interested in animals. And, you know, we're training that receptionist. So, you know, she's learning the job, but she's not learning the self-care. She's not learning the boundary setting. And those guys, you know, the team members are often left out of the well-being conversation as well. So that is another area where I've tried to target all levels of team members in the podcast and also in the coaching work that I do. And I'm glad you mentioned receptionists because I've actually been in veterinary offices where the receptionist was the front end receiver of all of the human clients' anger and frustration. Absolutely. And you know, what's really, really sad is people will be very nasty to the person answering the phone and lovely to the person who is caring for their dog or cat. And I see it I see it almost daily. Some clients, I mean, I really think that it is not just unique to veterinary medicine. You think about somebody who goes to a restaurant and is really nasty to their server. And it's it's just a respect issue, I think. And I think our receptionists really get much more of this than anybody else. And so when I work with receptionists, it tends to be with a group, with a team of receptionists. And the first thing that I try to do is stop, step back, and just acknowledge to them how hard their job is. I think that a lot of times nobody's really said that out loud. And maybe we know it, maybe we don't. You know, probably the first seven years I was in practice, I didn't understand how much abuse the receptionists take. And then when you think about they're often young, um, they're often, you know, coming straight out of school, don't necessarily have any training in this field, they're just blindsided by it. And, and then, unfortunately, what sometimes happens is that their direct supervisors or the veterinarians, you know, we see the nice side of the client. We see, you know, what version that person wants us to see. And sometimes that means that the veterinarian doesn't necessarily have the back of their staff. And I think really opening up, you know, the, the veterinarians and the owners and the manager's eyes to what the techs and especially the receptionists face can change the dynamics within a practice for the good. Well, I had mentioned another podcasting experience I had where I actually told the receptionist how good a job she did because it was an emergency situation with my dog and I ended up being bottom of the list because he was okay for that moment. And so we chilled out and waited the entire afternoon. So I got to witness everything that happened in that waiting room and what that receptionist had to be in charge of doing. And somebody came out and was very, very angry with her about the bill because she was in charge of, unfortunately, having to take the credit card or payment. And he was very, very angry. So what she did, and I told her later that you did an awesome job with that. She took him to the back mm. into one of the rooms and was very calm about it and said, let me just take you back here and we'll, we'll figure this out. He no longer had the audience of people in the waiting room. And he was able to chill out while somebody else came and explained the bill to him. He came out and he was smiling. Oh, wow. I don't know what was said, but, <laughs> you know, but he was smiling and was okay. And he left and everybody else noticed that that had happened. So it just kind of changed the whole energy of the entire waiting room. I thought, wow, what an awesome thing. Right. That's so. the power of a well-trained receptionist who's been empowered, mm -hmm. you know, and that's mm -hmm. the thing that they've been empowered to set the boundaries, to set the tone, to, you know, take that client into a different space, to bring somebody else in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in an emergency setting, unfortunately, they're going to face a lot of that, you know, anger over, over the bill. 
But that is the power. If we invest in all of our team members, it just it not only changes that client's experience, but that receptionist, I have to imagine, went home much happier than if she had just you know, been yelled at for 20 minutes and then said, no, I need your credit card. You know, it's certainly going to be a, a better work environment if you get to play a role like that. Well, and even even now with COVID, you know, I was standing in the parking lot dropping my dog off because we couldn't go in. And I watched the receptionist behind the door just answering one phone call after another as we all sat in our cars. And oh, what a challenging experience in these times when you can't even go in with your animal. But then the receptionist, it's not her fault or his fault. No. And, you know, it's it's funny with COVID because everything is going on by phone now. And so the phones in practices aren't necessarily set up for this. And the clients, understandably, are frustrated because they're not getting through. And who do they get through to? A customer service team member. And so that person then bears that initial frustration as well. So it is, it is definitely harder. You know, I'll have to say in my own life, I... Have to. I have been a little bit grateful for this last year. There have been some very good things that have come out of COVID for my family and for myself personally, but for our profession, you know, it really has been a litmus test for the hospitals that one were already prepared for challenges. You know, they had invested in training and in their teams in the front end. They've weathered this better. And then the second group I would say would be the hospitals that maybe hadn't already invested, but were really able to adapt and willing to adapt. And I think those hospitals have done quite well. And then you have the hospitals and I see these, you know, unfortunately owners, especially who they're just struggling. They're just absolutely struggling because they weren't prepared. They didn't have, you know, the ability to adapt quickly. Maybe they've been hit harder by some of the circumstances with COVID. And it's just been, I think for so many, just a defeating demoralizing year. Yeah, I, I bet. And going back to the example that I just gave in my own experience, though, the one other thing that I noticed is that as I was waiting in my car, I saw one veterinarian after another leaving to come out in the snow and the freezing temperature to talk to the owners in their cars. The owners were sitting in their warm car. The veterinarian was outside giving a report right. on the animal's exam. And I thought, and they smiled. One even waved to me because I hadn't seen him in a while. And I thought, oh, my gosh, how do you keep this energy and be so, well, they're passionate about what they do. Maybe. And maybe they're just really, really good at turning it on at work. And then they go home. And, and I don't mean to sound cynical, but we know that there's such a burnout problem. And I suspect that many of those vets are going home at the end of that day, not just physically exhausted, but emotionally exhausted. And, you know, we have a lot of introverts in our field. And so not only are they going out in the cold, smiling, but they're turning on all of that energy to interact and then dealing with all of the interactions within the hospital and then, go, you know, again, go home at the end of the day, just depleted. And some are really, really doing the self-care. I see it. And some are just, you know, burning themselves out and just putting on a good face. Well, in a previous podcast um, with my dog's veterinarian, that was last summer, I think, last June. My uh, dog's veterinarian talked about his own self-care mm. and including all kinds of music and hobbies, gardening, all kinds of really cool things besides the passion of taking care of animals. Right. And I know that this is your area of specialization. 
and interest is burnout prevention. Right, right. So the characteristics of burnout are very well defined. And the first one, and to me, the one that resonates really when I think about veterinarians is emotional exhaustion. If we can just capture that and think for a minute, you know, at the end of the day, you've been busy, you've maybe had angry clients, maybe you've had conflict within your staff, and you just leave feeling depleted. That's a red flag. That's something that we need to be noticing and realizing may be the beginning sign of burnout. Now, the other two pieces of burnout, you know, one is cynicism, this depersonalization, this this feeling of it it doesn't matter. And I, I think that that for many veterinarians, hopefully comes later. I think the emotional exhaustion tends to, to happen on the front end. And then the last is this feeling of, of, you know, that you're not effective, that you're not professionally effective. And so it's really a clearly defined syndrome. And so many of us just think th- this is just work. We're just tired because our job's hard. But really, if you're slipping into those three characteristics, it is something that requires treatment. And whether that treatment comes from a therapist or a coach depends on a lot of different factors. And we can talk about that if you want to get into it. But I think the first step is for veterinarians to realize this is real, this is defined, and that it can be addressed. And also, running away from burnout is not going to solve the problem. You know, job hopping, I see that a lot. I see a lot of veterinarians just, they they need a, a better work environment. They need a less toxic work environment. And don't get me wrong, there are definitely toxic people in toxic work environments. But most of the time, the burnout is there and the burnout needs to be addressed within that individual. And then they can decide if it's a tenable workspace or not. But if they leave in a state of burnout and just go look for happiness, either in a different hospital or a different career, I think the burnout is going to eventually catch up to them. Well, when I talk about the high rates of depression and suicide among veterinarians, I've had people say, what? I can't even believe it. They went into a profession to take care of animals. You know, what an awesome job all day long. (laughs) Yes. Right. But there is so much more to their their job that makes them more susceptible to burnout, depression, suicide. Could you go into that a little bit? I would love to. And I could talk about this all day. So, you know, first, I think it's really important to clarify this distinction between depression burnout, and of course, suicide. And so there are very clear data on the fact that veterinarians successfully commit suicide, successfully complete suicide at a higher rate than not only the general population, but other healthcare professionals. So MDs, dentists, everyone sort of has this association with dentists and suicide, but veterinarians have a significantly higher rate of suicide. Depression is a little less clear, and you may be more familiar with the data on this than I am, but my impression is that a big part of the suicide issue in veterinary medicine is it is suicide as is access to drugs. It is perhaps this idea that euthanasia, that death is a solution to suffering, and that there may not be as big of a discrepancy between depression and anxiety, which is, I think, important to talk about as well when you compare veterinarians to other health professionals. So I think it's really important to make that distinction that we know there's a suicide crisis. We do know that there is a high rate of depression, anxiety, and burnout among veterinarians, but that may not be you know, that different from the rest of the professional population. And then I think we also really need to talk about burnout versus depression, because I will have people ask me for coaching, and they are dealing with depression throughout their lives, either 
temporally. So they've had a depression diagnosis, you know, over time, or maybe they didn't previously, but they are feeling depressed all the time. And burnout really is specific to your workspace. It is, it is specific to your profession. And while the two can blend into each other, I really want veterinarians to understand if you're feeling burned out, but you go on vacation and you're so positive and happy and fine, that's probably burnout. But if you're feeling this feeling even away from work on your weekends, on your time off, then you may really be dealing with more of a mental health diagnosis. And it's more nuanced than that, but I just think that that's important to address. All of that set aside, why are veterinarians unhappy? Our job is really, really hard. So we, for the most part, people don't go to vet school because they didn't want to be medical doctors, because they couldn't be medical doctors, because they weren't smart enough. They went to vet school because they were passionate about medicine and science specifically with regard to animals. And so veterinarians tend to uh, hold themselves to the same standards in their minds that a physician would, even though we don't have all of the tools available to us that a physician might. And so, you know, we do tend to be perfectionists. We do tend to care very, very much about preventing illness, about treating illness properly, about, you know, not letting our patients down and not letting our clients down. And so I think perfectionism is a big factor in this issue with veterinarians. I do think that there are some very specific challenges that we face financially that can factor in. So veterinarians have very same expense with our tuition as physicians, but we don't have the same salaries. We have business loans. Oftentimes owners of practices not only have maybe still their student loans, but they've taken out exorbitant business loans. And so there's this perception that veterinarians are paid very well, but in fact, there's a tremendous amount of debt in the field. And I will say that I do think, I do see a trend that veterinary salaries are improving. But if you look 10 years ago, even eight years ago, at veterinary salaries and veterinary debt, there's a tremendous mismatch there. We're still dealing with people who came out of school, you know, 8, 10, 15 years ago, not being paid as well as people coming out now. And and we're making progress, but we're not, you know, we're not caught up. And so there's the perfectionism. There's the financial strain. There's also, you know, we've talked about it already, this conflict with clients. And I can say I generally love people. I really enjoy working with people. Not every veterinarian does. I think most of us, when we get into general practice, do. We know that's part of our jobs. But people are very emotional about their animals. I think increasingly so, perhaps. So there's understandable stress and strain when a pet is sick. Often there's misdirected anger and anxiety that's targeted to the veterinary team or the veterinarians. And then you couple in the client's financial limitations. And so most clients in the United States do not have pet insurance. And, you know, they want this very high level of care that is now available, but they don't, you know, necessarily have the means to afford it. So they don't want their pet to die, understandably, but they may not be able to even afford basic diagnostics, much less very expensive diagnostics and treatment. And that certainly creates strain for the veterinarian. Well, what comes to mind, too, is that if people have a new puppy, say, and then all of a sudden they find out it has, say, hip dysplasia or something, or a cruciate ligament tear or something after running through the backyard, that's a very, those are very expensive surgeries. And a lot of people are not able to just come up with that. Absolutely. 
And there's this, you know, I face this on a daily basis where there is this idea that the surgery exists and so the surgery must be performed. And I say this idea, I mean, among veterinarians. So, you know, some veterinarians, especially the closer they are to their training, there is this standard of care that we want for our pets, for our patients, but it's not affordable to everybody. And we really, as practitioners, have to get good at talking about different levels of care. And this idea that exists not so much among veterinarians, but I think out there in the world that if you can't afford medical care, then you shouldn't have a pet. I, I personally think that's absurd. So we have a tremendous pet overpopulation problem in our country. We have animals that are being euthanized because there aren't enough homes for them. And so in my mind, if I have a dog who's owned by a client who loves that dog very, very much, but can't afford a $5,000 surgery, well, we find a middle ground. I've seen the patient who's never been to the veterinarian. I'll never forget my first year in practice. I had a nine-year-old dog who came to me. This dog had not been spayed. The dog had maybe had a rabies vaccine. I really don't know. And she came in with pyometra, which is a life-threatening uterine infection that requires surgery, emergency surgery. And my boss, who was great, I mean, he was a great veterinarian and, and generally very on the mark, said, nah, he's not going to pay for the surgery. There's no way he's going to be able to do this. And the client paid for all of the diagnostics, had the surgery, left with the dog in the pickup truck, happy wow. as could be. And that dog had lived a wonderful nine years of life. And, you know, I hate to say it as a veterinarian, but without ever having seen a veterinarian. Now, it's not ideal, but that doesn't mean that that's a dog who doesn't have a great life and an owner who doesn't deserve to have a dog. So I think we really have to have a broader perspective on what is medical care, what is appropriate. And certainly it's somewhere between never having been to the vet and having a $5,000 hip replacement. But I think as veterinarians, if we can sort of relax some of our stringent ideals, it does make our job a little bit more comfortable. Now, that's easier, the better you know your clients. So if you don't know your client, you're seeing them for the first time and the dog has torn its cruciate, you have to tell them to go have a $4,000 surgery, right? Because that is the standard of care and you don't know what that client's going to say. But once you get to know your clients better, then you may adjust your expectations. And that's hard. It's a very tricky art. I would have to say too that you probably don't always get paid for these expensive procedures. That can happen. I think it depends a little bit on where you're practicing and a little bit on how your practice is managed. I will say this. There is the expectation, very interestingly, among some clients and I think among the general population that veterinarians love dogs and cats and therefore should be willing to be flexible on payment, right? Because we don't want that cat to suffer. And so why not just do the surgery and take a payment plan? or give a discount. And unfortunately, that's just not how business ownership works. And so if I want to be able to provide that surgery for every cat who needs it, I need to charge every client. And if I'm charging less and giving a discount here and there, and I've seen owners do this from a very good place, somebody foots that bill. And so either other clients foot the bill or the staff foots the bill, they're paid less, or the veterinarian foots the bill, they're paid less. And we've talked about the financial issues among veterinarians. Payment plans are a similar problem. And you'll hear this a lot. Uh, you know, we just, we'll just set up a payment plan. Can we just, can we make payments? Unfortunately, I'm not a bank. 
And if you're asking to set up a payment plan, your bank probably doesn't think that you're a good risk because otherwise you would have gotten a credit card and gotten, you know, the financing elsewhere. So we're asked to play banks. We're asked to, you know, be charities. And please don't get me wrong. I don't mean to sound callous, but I want to be really frank. These are the pinches. These are the financial stressors and strains that, you know, in a large human hospital, there's a whole department to deal with all of that stuff. And, you know, for, for a small business veterinarian who's really, truly trying to make payroll each month, asking for payment plans, asking for discounts, it, it adds to the stress and the strain and the challenges. And I think it's, it's, there's this misconception that veterinarians are paid so well that, you know, they, th- this should be a possibility. Well, Ginger, what about limiting beliefs? Do you think that that is a cause of burnout and stress? Yeah, and there's a paper on this that I found really interesting that really talked about how veterinarians don't see that they have flexibility and mobility in their careers. And for me, in the last year, I've had tremendous mobility in my career. And so it's fascinating to look back and think about 10 years ago. I was in that same boat as I think many veterinarians, where you come out of that school, you have this very specialized degree, you are trained to work on all species except humans, but you're not really trained to to move between careers, right? So you can be a veterinarian with small animals or large animals. You can, you know, maybe go back to the academic setting and do some further training. But at the end of the day, you're a veterinarian. And a lot of veterinarians who come out with, in some cases, $200,000, $300,000 in student loans, they're making maybe five figures, maybe low six figures, and they don't think that they can jump into a different career, even though they find that they're very unhappy in veterinary medicine this has been attributed to part of the suicide uh, rate that we're seeing in, in the burnout in, in the veterinary field. I'm here to say that we actually do have career mobility if we look for it. And this is where I think that if we address our burnout and we address the way we think about our world and manage our thoughts and manage our emotions, then we really can start to look for opportunities that are more creative to be happy. And so, you know, I really carved out this postdoc, this balancing two days a week of seeing patients, three days a week of doing research, that's not for everybody. But there are corporate jobs. There are you know jobs in industry, jobs in research, jobs in government, if people want to stay within veterinary medicine. But I think that it is a problem that so many of us think, you know, I trained to be a veterinarian. I dedicated so many years to education. I have to keep working in small animal medicine. And I can see the path, right? I saw this path to owning a hospital, let's say, and I can see it and I have to stay on it, even though it may not feel right anymore. So you had mentioned too that veterinarians coming out of of school, out of college, may have had some of this in their education. Yes, yes. We're starting to see veterinary social workers in the university setting. Part of what I do in my practice where I see patients is uh, mentor and train the new hires and we've had, you know, a few lately. And I'm hearing from them, you know, one is actually from Tennessee. So of course he had Dr. Strand, but here at NC State, the newest graduate that we hired from NC State came out with the goal of work-life balance. He has very specific expectations around his boundaries and his balance and also his self-care. He was taught in school to, you know, start the day with a little mindfulness And, you know, this was not (laughs) the case 15 years ago or 20 years ago when I was in school. 
And so I do think that these programs are taking hold and having positive effect. I think the challenge now is as these new graduates come out, are they going to be received positively with all of this? And it's going to depend on the practice. And some of the corporate practices are doing a good job of trying to incorporate veterinary social workers and hopefully will receive these new graduates well. I do think that a lot of the privately owned practices, which I love, my heart is in small business. They are of the mindset that I had to work really hard and you should too. And you have to live this career for a while. And it's going to be an interesting intersection as these new graduates come out. Another challenge that we know is some of the students are not interested in well-being. It's we are perfectionistic. We are we see ourselves as scientists and this touchy-feely social work stuff, you know, yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to listen to that lecture. So, you know, there's still a challenge ahead with the strong personalities among veterinarians, but I do think it's moving in the right direction. It's usually the office managers and some veterinarians who have reached out to say, "Hey, we've noticed that there's a problem." Yes. Can you come on in? The challenge that I see veterinary social workers facing is that the hospitals know there's a problem, but they're not always willing to uh, open up to the social workers and really let you come in with your expertise and problem solve. And I don't know if you've experienced that, but I've talked to other uh, VSW students who are already certified VSWs who have said, you know, I get hired into this hospital and they really just want us to talk to the clients. They don't really open up. And I get it. I can imagine that happening. And I think, you know, I've even experienced it a little bit. And what I would say is just do what you do. Just keep pushing forward. And as they see it working, you know, even if you're working with a receptionist, for example, as the doctors start to see the change in different people in the hospital, I think it will permeate. It's a trickle down. Absolutely. Trickle down or trickle up, whichever direction is fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the AVMA national conventions, I believe, have well-being uh, topics, right? Yes, absolutely. And this is where, you know, we talked about burnout. We haven't really talked about compassion fatigue. Mm -hmm. And for so long, I feel like the only word people used was compassion fatigue. And I think that so many veterinarians are not compassion fatigued. And it's a misdiagnosis. I know you've talked about this on your podcast before, but it's for some veterinarians off-putting. And so you'll see, you know, a seminar on compassion fatigue and the veterinarian, I think, defensively says, well, I'm compassionate. I'm not fatigued in my compassion. I'm not even going to go to that. And I do think the language matters here. And so, you know, burnout is certainly, you know, you'll see burnout talks, you'll see compassion fatigue talks, but I do think for veterinarians to really understand the distinction there and that nobody's accusing you of not being compassionate if they're talking to you about compassion fatigue, but in fact, that you've just dwindled uh, because you've been so compassionate. And again, that compassion fatigue and burnout are two very different problems. But you see that in the human medical community as well. Words are very important. And, you know, we, we see doctors and nurses when I worked for a healthcare organization that all of a sudden would leave the field and they were passionate about that field. And it was really sad to see that where if they had gotten that training and and received a little bit of help, they would have stayed in the field. I think this is a really important point because we do lose veterinarians sometimes to different practices, but sometimes they leave the profession altogether. And when you have a practice owner who is not invested in well-being and the mental health of their team, they may not have ever experienced any of this. And they may come from this mindset that, you know, this is touchy-feely and that a good veterinarian is strong and doesn't have these issues. However, if they're willing to 
invest in their people, they're actually going to save their practice time. They're going to save their practice money. And so even if it's not something that's directly affected the practice owner or the practice management, being willing to open up to well-being and be there for not, you know, not just your associate doctors, but your managers, your techs, your receptionists, your kennel staff, it's going to benefit you even if you don't personally need the services. I think if we can get practice owners and some of just the older vets to recognize that, and I say older vet, I mean, I consider myself a, you know, an older vet in a way, you know, we have to open up and soften to this stuff if we want to continue to grow. And really it is in the best interest of our practice and of our clients and our patients. Well, even the word mindfulness, some of my clients are like, stop using the word mindfulness. You hear that all the time. Yeah. So I've really stopped. I've really tried to stop saying that word and just living in the moment or appreciating what you have right now instead of in the future where anxiety lives or in the past where depression uh, resides. So I think that we're starting to hear, especially with COVID, a lot of the same words being used over and over again. And to get to the heart of what it really means is important. Yeah. And I think that, you know, whatever words we choose around self-care, even self-care, you know, people don't want to hear that. And I say people, veterinarians often, you know, self-care, you know, that's, that's Mm -hmm. uh, weak. It's a weakness. There's, there's this thought that if you need self-care, that you are weak, that you're not committed in some way. And I use it all the time. I use mindfulness all the time. I use Mm self-care all the time. And what I tell the people that I'm working with is this, that, you know, burnout, that first symptom of burnout is emotional exhaustion, exhaustion. And self-care is as simple as getting sleep. It's as simple as getting good nutrition. It's as simple as going for a walk. And yeah, then we get into mindfulness and all the other things we think about with self-care. It's not a pedicure. It's not a massage once a month. You know, it is just this little daily stuff that keeps us re-energized. And it is about energy. And it goes back to that burnout, that emotional exhaustion. And really, for some people, I won't even say emotional exhaustion. I'll just say exhaustion. I love to use the Myers-Briggs. I like to know you know, who I'm working with. And if they're a high Tia thinker, they may not want to talk about emotional exhaustion, but they can relate to exhaustion. And, you know, you talk about self-care, it sounds touchy-feely, but you talk about get a good night's sleep and be less exhausted. And so it is just choosing your words wisely, but I still definitely work with them on self-care and mindfulness, even if I'm a little bit more careful about how I put it. When I work with students, oftentimes they practice self-care during times of break, during spring break, right. or during winter break, and then very little sleep in between between that. And I try to talk to them about how to be a marathon runner. And marathon runners don't do sprints that will get them to their end goal of, you know, long term. And the practice of just getting good sleep. I know even when you're a student, just going to bed at the same time and waking up at the same, simple things like that really do matter. You know, and I dealt with insomnia for decades, severe insomnia. And so to talk about sleep, it's not a little thing. And for some people, it can be overwhelming. If they're depressed, if they're anxious, if they're burnt out, any of those three things, and they're not sleeping well, they may feel that it's not even an option to get a good night's sleep. And, and it's, you know, when I was in the throes of, so my daughter was diagnosed with cancer when she was three. And when we were in the throes of that, you know, sleep wasn't available to me. And I really believed that. I just believed that I was not going to ever sleep well again. It's a challenging thing for people who have lived their lives in a very 
highly driven, pull all nighters to, to get through school kind of way to really get them to shift out of that mindset that sleeplessness is just almost a badge of honor and to really start to see that they does not only deserve sleep, but can achieve it. And yes, it's going to take time and they may need to work with a physician. They may need to work with a therapist because it's a really tough thing to retrain your body to sleep. But I do believe that in sleep above anything else, if we're not getting good sleep, it's, it's so hard to do the rest of this work. Right when COVID started over a year, well, a year ago, I guess, I spoke with a physician friend who said, Allison, make sure you get good sleep and you move and you eat well. And he just went through some of the basics. But sleep was the most important thing that he suggested. And I think that so many people are understanding, they're starting to learn about self-care. And, you know, mindfulness, you you brought that up. And I think that mindfulness is a very important component of self-care. I do have a meditation practice. But I think, again, sleep, you have to start with sleep and nutrition and exercise. And believe me, you know, I know how hard it is to get out there and exercise when you're depressed, for example. But prioritizing those three really physical needs first it's so powerful. And, and, you know, again, if we can just work with veterinarians on these little baby steps, it can really, really pay off. So do you want to talk a little bit about how you're coaching other veterinarians? Sure. And I will say it's definitely taking a backseat right now with my animal practice and research. I am really spread thin. So most of the work that I'm doing right now is internal coaching in the hospital where I'm working. And so when I asked, I actually approached them and, and they had, you know, talked to me about coming to work for them. And I said, I would like to, but I really want to make sure that I'm still able to do this coaching thing that I love. And, you know, can I work within the practice? And they were very receptive to it. So that's most of what I'm doing right now. I am taking on external coaching clients, but very limited. But when I work with, and whether it's a veterinarian or a manager or, you know, a team, I do a little bit of working with groups of team members, um, which I love because they just bounce off of each other. You know, they just grow together and they share. I start with this basic stuff. I really start with self-care. I actually start with mindfulness along with sleep and nutrition and those things. And I come back to it at the beginning of each meeting and just a check-in, how's your self-care? And, you know, because it's easy to say, hey, practice self-care and then forget about it and deprioritize it. And I think that if you're not doing these basic things first, all the rest of the work is, is so much harder. And the rest of the work, you know, kind of depends on the person. And so if I'm working with a new graduate, it's very exciting. This is not, they're coming out, they're a fresh slate. And while they do somewhat lead, which is always my goal with coaching for the client to lead and take things in the direction that they're interested in with a new graduate, I do get to shape a little bit more because they just, they don't necessarily know what they need and, and they'll admit that. But I do, you know, work with things as simple as boundary setting, which I think is a big problem. In very important. Though. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in veterinarians, this is a very interesting sort of uh, institutional issue. We don't have the same necessarily boundaries in place that you would imagine at, at your family physician. So if you call your doctor and say, um, you know, my child's sick and what do I do? The receptionist just says schedule an appointment, Right. And you don't get to talk to the doctor. You might get to talk to the nurse. And the nurse is probably going to say, you need to come in. And in a lot of veterinary practices, the client calls and says, my puppy's sick and I want to talk to the doctor. And the doctor calls them back and talks to them for 25 minutes. And that's a 
boundary issue. Now we all get to decide what our boundaries are. And this is where I love boundary coaching because everybody gets to decide what their own boundaries are going to be. And over time and over your career, those boundaries are going to shift and change. And it's going to depend on a lot of factors, but only you get to set the boundaries. And if your boundaries are being violated, it's because you haven't set them or maintained them. And this is eye-opening for my coaching clients because so much of the time they'll say, my boss is violating my boundaries. And I'll say, well, have you told them what your boundary is? And there's never been a conversation. There's never been even maybe a conscious decision to set a boundary. And so to me, the, this is basic, very basic work that's never been done. And our, and our hospitals often aren't set up for clear boundaries. Um, and we don't value it as a profession. So a lot of practice owners do want their associates not to have clear boundaries because they benefit from it. It's not, you know, necessarily an overt, explicit issue, but it's implicit in the way that the hospital's designed. So boundary setting is a big thing that we work with, and then management of thoughts and feelings. And, you know, I, my coach training, so I did the veterinary human support certificate, but I also have done coach training through um, an executive coaching program. And what's funny to me is that program was very, very much, let's don't talk about feelings. You know, we're coaches and we talk about mm-hmm. thoughts and goals. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. You know, as a woman in a very stressful career, I'm going to talk about feelings. And if my client needs to, and most of the time they do, we, we talk about feelings and we talk about how our thoughts and our feelings intersect and what we can do about that. And so those very basic things often, you know, a veterinarian has never really sat down and talked about in a way that is anything other than venting. And so to talk about thoughts and feelings and boundaries in a planful way, in a way that allows them to think about how they're going to make some changes, it's really empowering. It's really exciting. About thoughts and feelings, very important. (laughs) Yes. It would be very off-putting if I wasn't able to talk about that. Well, and I don't want to overstate, you know, this, this executive coach training program that I, you know, took was, it was great. It is a school that is, was founded by a PhD psychologist who moved into coaching. And most of the instructors do have a psychology background. They're wonderful, but they want to set very clear distinctions between what is therapy and what is coaching. And I absolutely agree with that. Some of the coaches were more comfortable talking about feelings, some less so. I think it's a style thing. And I think a lot of those coaches were truly working in the C-suite with executives. And, you know, and it was a very different thing than what, what I'm actually doing. Well, Ginger, I'm really excited about the work that you're doing. I am too. I love this. I say to myself, and I'll say to a friend who was in the VHS program, I can't believe I get to do this, right? And so whether it's the podcast, whether it's my research, which we haven't talked about at all, but my research is, you know, at the intersection of all of my interests and then seeing patients, you know, I get to go in two days a week and just busy, 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 see one patient after the next, which I, I love that pace. It feels really too good to be true right now. I want to pause and say that three, four, five years ago, it did not feel too good to be true. It felt really hopeless at times. And I thought that I needed to run away from veterinary medicine. So I have been through two cycles of mildish burnout. And I want other veterinarians to know that probably most of their peers have been through some form of burnout. And so if they're experiencing this and thinking they need to change careers or that they need something, they're not alone, even if we're not talking about it, you know? So anyway, I just, I can't, I can't say enough how lucky I feel right now with where my career is. 
Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And that's what gives you the strength. And other people will see that strength and decide that, oh, there is hope, right? I hope so. I really do. I see so many young veterinarians that are three or four years out and they think this is it, you know, that this is all that there is and it's not going to get better. And there's something wrong with them. And it's not, it's, there's growth that needs to happen, but it's not because they're broken and it's not because there's something uniquely wrong with them, but they do need some tools that they just haven't been given yet. And and that's where coaching comes in or in a lot of cases, you know, good therapy. And if they're not sure, then they need to ask, you know, if they're not sure if they need therapy or a coach or both, then, you know, just ask and we can talk through it. Well, Ginger, if anybody wants to reach out to you, what's the best contact information? Yeah, so my email address is ginger, G-I-N-G-E-R, at vet2vetcoaching.com. And my website is doctor, that's D-R, drgingertempleton.com. And so either one of those. And there is a contact form through the website. They also can listen to my podcast, which is vet to vet coaching the podcast is available on all platforms. And I think the thing about that is if they start at the beginning, they'll get a real sense of what coaching is and what my style is. And although I'm really prescriptive in the podcast, I kind of tell people to journal and I tell people some exercises to do. Coaching is more client driven, but you'll at least get an idea of where I'm coming from. We will put all this information in the show notes And I also want to put in the show notes, the hotline number that's specifically for veterinarians. Yes, yes, there is. And so you've got the, I mean, honestly, I think having the, and of course, it's escaping me now, but just the suicide prevention hotline that is uh, global, I think is important to have. And then of course, there is NAMVI, not one more vet, they have uh, some, I think, a texting option. So there are there are several different resources for suicide prevention that I think would be good to have. So Ginger, thank you so much for being a guest. I really appreciate. You know, we've we've talked about compassion fatigue in other podcasts, but I don't think we can talk about it enough. Each guest has brought their own perspective and it's been really valuable. It's wonderful. I love you're doing this. I love this podcast. I'm so excited to listen to more and just keep up the good work. Thanks so much, Ginger. And I'll be listening to yours in the future too. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. As we learned today, compassion fatigue and burnout is a real thing among veterinarians. I've had several other podcasts that touched on this important subject, but it can really never be discussed enough until we are all able to reduce the incidence of mental health issues and suicide rates among veterinarians. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Ginger Templeton, for sharing her knowledge and direct experience as she helps others prevent and deal with stress, burnout, and resolve issues they face as part of their work with animals. I encourage everyone to really express appreciation for veterinary professionals who work hard and battle through so many challenges to take care of our animals. Thanks, everyone, and please stay tuned to the next episode. Have a great day. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Animal Academy podcast. Detailed contact information and links for each of the guests and resources provided inside this episode can be found at my website, animalacademypodcast.com. I'm Allison White, licensed clinical social worker specializing in the human-animal connection. Let's share and learn from the animals in the next episode of the Animal Academy Podcast.